Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans and the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of Italian, the Italian and Mediterranean Colloquium, and the Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Assistant Professor of Italian Pier Mattia Tomasino's book, The Venetian Quran, a Renaissance Companion to Islam. First, we'll hear the comments Brinkley Messick, Professor of Anthropology and Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia, and Francesca Trivellato, Professor of Early Modern History at Princeton's Institute for Advanced Study, made at the panel. And then, we'll hear Pierre Mattia speaking about his book at the panel. This was a wonderful book for me to read, actually, uh, not only because of the various Orientalists mentioned in passing, histories of Orientalist inquiry and things like that, um, the surprising thing for me was, um, I'm very interested in reading itself, I just have a little book myself on the anthropologist's reader, uh, but this reading is uh, at a level that staggered me really, and one of the interesting things for me was um, that the most I learned about was Christianity, but the theology of Christianity, I mean, the, these are things I would like to explore, I, they were only uh, pushed in front of me in, in Repeatedly, and I didn't know it was. I, I don't know what Lutherans are, but in Catholics, I've got an idea. But but it, there, there were many subdivisions and, and stresses and, and arguments, and, and just in Venice, and then you go elsewhere, and it's even more staggering amount of stuff that was uh, presented in the course of telling the history of the life story of this book. And the amazing thing also was the, the, the two heavy hits against the book, the disparaging original reviewer, and then even Carlo Ginsberg comes off badly, having, not having appreciated what Minocchio probably was getting out of this book, or who Minocchio was as a reader. I mean, I grew up sort of intellectually with Carlo Ginsberg and uh, Microstoria and things like that, being close to ethnography. Even he wrote about the inquisitors as anthropologists at one point. Uh, but, but, Amazing, this peasant substratum didn't work at all, and doesn't work for me, and didn't work for this argument. And so, but these readers, I mean, one of the things that was so amazing about this was not only did we get introduced to a variety of types of readers, and also communities of interpretation, but also the perspectives of those readers um, were, were imagined into, into reality, in a sense. Um, because you, he, Paramathia, had in, in many cases, very slim resources with which to think what the readership was about and what, what was being made of this book. Um, one of the amazing horizons of the book is that it was not about Italy at all. It's, it's, it has, as he says, it's Eurasian in, 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 in vision. And that's an amazing thing to say. That, that's, a, that's a kind of a thing we don't... Uh, it's unusual to think a book and to think it beyond its context. I mean, the work is a work of context, and creating context for this book. But that context is not the conventional context. It's a context far beyond. Um, and, and, and I think that Eurasian uh, story is really quite phenomenal. Um, also, I was very fascinated by the attention to the print uh, publication, the... the, 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 the the uh, work of creating the book and the, the, the commercial motive of the book, which goes back to people like Ben Benedict, goes up to people like Benedict Anderson writing about imagined communities and new kinds of, of, of novels and communities created. But here, it's, it's a, a publisher who sees things that aren't obvious to the modern reader 
as part of the, the motivation for publication. Um, one of the things I think I would like to hear more about um, is this question of paratext. That a term, I use a lot of terms like genre and, and, and etc. in my own work, but paratext is something um, I haven't used, and I'd like to hear more about it, because I think it's the study here of paratext is so complex and so diverse in so many instances of it, is it, is it just a, a generic notion of all that which goes with the text, uh, from the title on down to every kind of uh, marginalia, et cetera? Or, but so I'd like to hear what we learn about the paratext, uh, an analysis, the method of paratext. Um, the question of contextualizing I would come back to also. What, what are the, what are the uh, observations about what it takes to contextualize such a book as this, such a book that is, is pertinent to the Ottoman Empire and, and to international trade and international uh, Christian relations all across Europe and translation theories, etc. Um, how do we can how do what, what are the what, are the, what do you leave us as as methods and strategies in, in doing this amazingly contextualizing work? And then finally, um, the question of the companion, the subtitle of the book, a Renaissance companion to Islam. What is a companion? What, are we, what is this genre of companion that is a text and its, its others all built into it? Um, and is, is this a, a sort of an emic kind of notion that it was in the publisher's mind or in the translator's mind that this is what this book would do? Or is this your notion of, of what is, its capacity is and its, its heritage is? Next, we'll hear Francesca Trivellato's comments from the panel. Well, I prepared a few images. Um, just because eight minutes is a, is a tight time. And I had the pleasure of reading the book when it first appeared in Italian, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity to say a few words about this marvelous English translation. Uh, there are books that we read to learn something new about the subject, and then there are books that we read uh, to learn new ways of thinking about things that interest us. And it's rare that we read a book that accomplishes both goals at once. And I think this is one of those books. And the fact you'll agree that it is its author's first book, it's even more uh, impressive. Um, the way the, you know, the, 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 it's hard to categorize this book. And some of the questions I would raise, give it, you know, your comments give exactly the sense. I think to call it a biography of an object is one way of describing it. Um, it is the object itself is many things, and uh, um, the way in which the book begins is by telling us what the book is not. Um, the object, not 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 the Venetian program. And I thought that was a very uh, clever um, way. Um, first, I, I wanted to say that. Um, the book is not really a mystery novel that would be too, too banal, but what it made me think of was the image of a labyrinth. As I was reading the book, I felt as the author is just a few steps ahead of me in this maze of walls, and I trail a few steps behind, and the author always tells me how he reasons through the various clues, and I'll, I'll return on, the word of, on this word, why Pierre chooses to sometimes to stand still, sometimes to turn left, sometimes to go straight, sometimes to go back. And I thought that was a marvelous way of weaving together, as I said, the object and the method. 
And I use the word uh, um, clue because it appears in the book itself, but also because it is one of uh, Carla Ginsburg's favorites word. And, uh, and uh, um, you know, Ginsburg is both an invisible and very present interlocutor in the book. Um, and the first uh, clue appears um, in, uh, the first clues appear in the frontispiece of this object. And as I said, Pyrmetia begins to <coughs> prove those clues to be deceptive. So the book uh, that he's analyzing is not a translation of the Quran. It's certainly not an accurate translation, nor is it a translation from the Arabic, which are the two things that the frontispiece says the book is. Um, then it moves to the most obvious clues that are you know, immediately a little richer uh, than these deceptive uh, frontispiece, and that is the dedicatory letter which uh, addresses the book to the French ambassador in Istanbul, Gabriel Daramo, who is ambassador from 1546 to 53, and just in the early months of 1547, the year when the Venetian Quran is printed, is passing by Venice, and the dedication letter is signed by Andrea Rivabene, who's a publisher in Venice. And here he, he digs into the biography of these two figures, and uh, uh, we learn that uh, the French ambassador was, uh, at the moment, <coughs> trying to um, build this alliance between France and the Ottoman Empire, which really upsets both the Pope and the Holy Roman Emperor. And uh, Ribabene is a public, his publishing house is a bit like a hub of these heterodoxical groups that are not quite Lutheran, but they're really um, refusing uh, the um, hardening of the Catholic doctrine that is happening in those very months in Trent, not far from Venice. So in this way, the, the Venetian Quran is contextualized in this world of um, Christian heterodoxy. He then, Pia moves to a very hidden clues. These are pretty, you know, hiding in plain sight. And he, for the first time, arrives at identifying the author of the Alcorano di Macometto, who is a certain Giovanni Battista Castrodardo, who was a prolific translator from Latin into the vernacular in Venice in those decades, but who then retreat uh, in his uh, native Belluno and died in obscurity and had to be really brought back to life and very sensitive says, you know, I hope I'm not doing, um, I'm not forcing him out because he willingly uh, uh, retreated away from the spotlight in many ways. And the way in which he arrives at Castrodardo is very, is very interesting. He, he disproves every previous attribution that had been done to various authors. And uh, um, arrives at Castrodardo, if I understood you correctly, through a really hidden clue that took you to a biographical sketch of Castrodardo by a local historian, a physician who became sort of a, um, you know, a, a local archivist and historian uh, in Belluno. And from there, you started digging into archives. And so you mixed uh, your work as a philologist with the work of the more traditional work of the historian. And you arrived at fleshing out this figure that um, was known for other works, but not for this. 
And uh, the other Italian historian who had traveled to the lower Alps in order to question accepted uh, historiographical wisdom about uh, the 16th century reading culture uh, in Italy was, as mentioned, uh, uh, Carlo Ginzburg, who had found the key to understand peasant culture in uh, uh, the Inquisition trials that were held in Friuli by the very Inquisition that was trying to repress the peasant culture in which uh, Ginsburg was interested in. And uh, one of uh, you know, Ginsburg's heroes, uh, Menocchio, most likely read and possibly owned a copy of the Alcorano, which he may have exchanged um, with other readers from Feltre. So it's a sort of a, a region where uh, uh, Pierre Mattia and Ginsburg's uh, um, subjects and, and the protagonists move. But in the 1970s, Ginsburg was interested particularly in issue of class relations and not so much in Islam, so much so that he argued that if Menachio read the Quran, he would have, he, if he had read it, he would have found it uh, uh, incomprehensible and totally foreign to his cultural reference. And instead, having at this point in the, in the book, uh, uh, the, the chapter of Menachio is the penultimate, having elucidated what the Al-Quran of Makometo is, Permatia is also able to challenge this conclusion and uh, argue that Ginsburg was generationally uh, not so interested in Islam and therefore underestimated the degree to which the story of the prophets, of Mary, and of Jesus that exist in, Quran, in the Quran, including this companion to Islam, this notion that this, this book actually gathered a number of both ethnographic and polemical information may have actually resonated a lot with Menocchio. So this, I thought, was at the very least a wonderful example of how erudition and um, the concern with the present, which is sometimes invoked as a sin for historians, uh, produce what arguably is a more accurate uh, rendition of the past. And if there are other studies that have demonstrated that sort of with the post-September 11 impetus in studying the influences of Islam in uh, Latin, Christian, early modern culture, we have discovered that Islam was very present in early modern culture more than before. Um, so this is just a short snapshot. I just want to conclude by um, saying a few words of praise for the extraordinary agility with which uh, Pierre Mattia moves uh, across not just disciplinary uh, areas, but also among uh, you know, really school of thoughts that belong to different countries and different institutions in the very same country. And uh, there's a touch of his own biography in the preface, which I thought was uh, both moving and illuminating. And um, I'm sure those of you who uh, are in the classroom with him will appreciate how he brings his own uh, uh, personal interest to bear in what is a really extraordinary um, scholarly work. So congratulations. Finally, we'll hear Pier Mattia Tomasino responding to Brinkley and Francesca at the panel. So thank you very much, and I'm currently on, on leave in Princeton, but it's, it's very good to come back and hear, hear you and these words. So thank you very much, and I'd like to thank the Hyman Center and Elizabeth for sharing the session, and the, the, both Brinkley and Francesca. 
so I would like to first answer Brinkley and talk, talk about the paratext. So what is the paratext? Um, what's not the paratext? What is or what's not the paratext? Of course, my research starts from uh, uh, Gérard Genet and the thresholds of the text. And um, um, my formation, my, my background was uh, Italian philology, but uh, starting to study this book forced me uh, to learn a lot about uh, book history. So for me, the paratext and the study of this particular paratext, and I mean with this, for this research, especially the uh, dedicatory letters and uh, the material that is before the book in, in, in one uh, moment, and then the marginalia. And with marginalia, I mean first the printed marginalia, and then also the marginalia that were left by readers. So one of the part of the book is to um, read all the 70 copies that I found around the uh, European and American libraries, and among the readers of this book there were Montesquieu, not only Menocchio, but also Montesquieu, or very important um, translator of Italian literature, actually British translator of Italian literature. So in this book essentially what I did was studying very closely all the material that was um, published before the book, so the peritext, what is around, uh, the son, astonet, and the dedicatory letter, then to find a second version of this dedicatory letter and then to study the printed marginalia that were left there from previous editions, so from the Latin edition of the book, and then from this new edition, and then from the readers. So for this work, I work on the paratext, and I work on specific part of what we consider paratext. For example, in my second book, I am wor working now on the epigraphs, so the, qu the quotation at the beginning of a book. Uh, to answer to the second question, the context, uh, how to study the context and contextualize, well, this is a, uh, a huge differences of scale, because there is the local history of Belluno and the bishops of Belluno and the family of Castrodardo, there is Venetian diplomacy, there is the geopolitics of the Mediterranean. No? So there are different scales that are... Uh, so I had to study both the uh, book as an object, but also the uh, different contexts, Belluno, Venice, and the Mediterranean that was not East and West, but was a Mediterranean in which uh, France was allied with the Ottoman Empire. So it was a complex, in that sense, Mediterranean. So why the companion? Uh, I call it companion because uh, this book, the first intended public of the book, I, I think is the people and the refugees, religious political refugees that were going to the Ottoman Empire from Venice and from the Iberian Peninsula, and they were helped also by the French embassy. So there is a flu of people that were finding a new life in the Ottoman Empire 
And Venetian printers found uh, a possible market also financed by the uh, embassy, the French embassy. So um, I will dare to, to talk about this book also as a book for refugees, as a guide to settle down and learn about what is the Ottoman Empire. Among them also uh, the Jewish Sephardi to which uh, Andrea Bene was linked. So also in that sense, and it, this is something that politically we have to remember in this Italy, in this contemporary Italy that closed the ports. Thank you. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Pierre Mattia Tomasino's book, The Venetian Quran, a Renaissance companion to Islam. I hope you'll listen to the other podcast from this panel discussing Constantina Zanu's book, Transnational Patriotism in the Mediterranean, 1800-1850, Stammering the Nation. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.